Welcome to CEF Insights, your source for closed-end fund information and education brought to you by the Closed-End Fund Association. My name is Diane Merritt. Today we are joined by Rod Davidson, Head of Fixed Income Investment Specialists with Aberdeen Standard Investments and their family of 10 U.S. closed-end funds. We're happy to have you with us today, Rod. Hi, nice to speak to you, Dan, and I'm looking forward to uh, answering some of your questions. Rod, Aberdeen Standard is a global investment manager, and you look at fixed income investments in all world markets. In recent months, we have experienced an unusual economic environment across many parts of the world. Can you give us an idea of where the general fixed income market stands in Europe? Sure. You know, as you mentioned there, we have Aberdeen Standard Investments. We manage about $190 billion of fixed income assets in cash liquidity and the full range of bond funds. A large proportion of those are managed out of our European offices in Edinburgh and London and for European and global clients. And there's no question that what we've experienced over the last few months through COVID-19, the emergence of and the dealing with and the the oil price movement as well has made it a very tricky environment for bond investing and in a sense made investors very nervous. Now, I guess you've got to put things in context. 2019 was a strong year for returns across the fixed income asset class from rates, uh, investment grade, high yield and emerging debt bonds and funds across the piece all performed quite strongly. And I guess coming into the year, we were quite positive for a continuation of that rally, certainly for this first six to nine months of the year. Of course, an exogenous shock like COVID-19 is very hard to plan for. So I don't think there really would be a manager out there that could say they had a great period during March this year because it's impossible to really set a portfolio up for a circumstance like the one we experienced. The negative, I guess, for investors in general now is to try and contend with the outcome of the virus and the the extent and the impact it's had on, on the economic outlook, which, as we've seen from the numbers, has been quite dramatic. So to sum it up, bond investors in Europe are nervous as a whole, but they have seen markets settle down, bid offer prices, have normalized and buyers have started appearing again with cheapened prices. So that in itself, it gives some degree of room for optimism for the future. However, you can't ignore the dramatic economic data that's currently being printed in countries around the world, including Europe. And how about Asia and Australia? Okay, so I would say certainly during March, it was a very similar situation. But since then, we've probably seen a slight split between the Asian subcontinent and Australia itself. And I guess Australia will come to second. But in a way, Asia has settled down. The markets in Asia for fixed income have settled down quicker. And there are a number of factors here. The dominance of China within the region and the fact that China was an early entrant to the COVID crisis, but would appear to be an early exiter as well. So they very quickly clamped down travel movement around Wuhan and beyond. And they seem to have got things under control very quickly, whereas Europe was a bit slower to the party, um, Europe and North and South America, and 
in a sense, are still facing some ongoing issues. Now, that's not to ignore that there won't be small regional or local spikes in the virus, but it certainly seems as a whole the controls that China put in place gave a degree of confidence within China and across the Asian region that actually things could normalise quicker. So we've seen bond markets settle down. And in fact, I know in our Taiwan office, even during the height of uh, the March COVID period, they were able to raise about $100 million in a closed-end fund for China. So in a fixed maturity strategy, very similar to the closed-end arena. So it shows you that although investors were nervous for a period, they seem to have settled down quicker. Australia, on the other hand, probably because of its more global links, it has a high degree of dependence on China and Asia, but it also has more global links historically. It is probably facing a more tricky economic future. And in fact, the numbers are suggesting um, Australia is about is just going into its first recession in 30 years. So I think for the politicians and the central bankers in Australia, it's just a different set of conditions that they have to face. And the investors there will be very wary of the immediate future. Many investors have looked to emerging markets for higher yields. How have these markets been impacted by COVID-19 and the resulting economic and monetary stimulus policies? Okay, uh, again, a very good question. In fact, March was... Uh, I think when I chat with the emerging market team, and I was doing a call earlier with Brett Demont, our global head of EMD, uh, and he was highlighting the sell-off in emerging debt actually in March was the most aggressive that he can remember. And, and he's been a, he's a seasoned professional from the emerging market arena, but he feels that the acute sell-off nature in March was as aggressive the only other time that he's experienced as an aggressive move was back in the Russian crisis in the 90s. So you can see in that early period, we, you know, across all the markets that had rallied and were well supported during 2019, suffered badly during March. And indeed, within the EM arena, we haven't seen a full correction in terms of the sell-off that we might have experienced in the investment grade arena, but that aggressive sell-off was fueled by a very dramatic widening of bid-offer prices. And again, I kind of highlight that we saw, for example, a large increase in investor allocations to emerging market corporate debt during 2019. And I guess some of those investors got nervous. We saw a few sellers in March, but in general, most investors sat on the sidelines to wait and see how this would, would pan out. And in actual fact, by the end of April, we saw investors coming back into the market, as you rightly point out, looking at the renewed pricing in the emerging market arena and the, the increased yield opportunities that are there. I think the good thing from an investing point of view now is that some of those opportunities are still there. And yet we do think as we age away through the early part of this economic slump and maybe view the recovery appearing in 2021, the emerging debt actually could perform very well. And we expect to see more buyers appear at these cheapened levels. 
the monetary stimulus, as you point out, is extremely important as a key guide to the support that we've experienced in the market. And indeed, now you see this general consensus view that used to be very much focused on the developed world, but now we're seeing central banks in the emerging market arena in a position to lower their interest rates on the back of softer inflation data that allows them to support their domestic economies. So, you know, in general, the coordinated central bank and government bond buying programs have been extremely important. And it's given a level of confidence that we know when we look back to the financial crisis, uh, a similar situation unfolded and we saw the support for markets coming in and settling investors' angst. U.S. investors are typically underexposed to non-U.S. investments. Given the current market dynamics, should these investors be looking to diversify their fixed income exposure with international markets? I think this is probably as good a period as any in the last 20 years for U.S. investors to consider this type of activity, to consider broadening their asset allocation. And one of the reasons I say that is because COVID-19 has been a bit of a leveler. Prior to the appearance of the virus, the U.S. economy for the previous 15 years had been regarded in a much stronger, firmer position, certainly post the financial crisis in 2008, when the Fed and the Treasury were very quick to stabilize what was a potentially a very tricky situation in the U.S., they were able to stabilize the situation and allow markets, both equities and bonds, to continue trading well and find support, as did the economy. COVID-19 is different. It's definitely attacked economic confidence to a higher degree than people might have expected. And this is partly because post the financial crisis, in a sense, The U.S. had been through a very stable economic period, yet there were signs that that was coming to an end, even towards the end of last year. And although, as I mentioned earlier, our fixed income analysts and managers weren't expecting an immediate correction or a downturn in the economy in the first part of this year, they thought a recession was eminently possible in 2021 or indeed early 2022. COVID-19 has fast-tracked this recession. So we've kind of leveled the economic playing field. And as such, there are two things going on here. Firstly, from a U.S. investor point of view, you might well consider that the strength of the dollar that's been evident for the last 10 years at least may be about to turn over or at least stabilize against some of the other currencies. The second point is, We're now seeing a narrowing of the interest rate differential, which is in general a key supporter of of currencies where you get a positive carry. So U.S. interest rates have been quickly cut to zero and U.S. government yields have headed towards zero in a pretty steady fashion. So that pickup in yield or interest rate differential that was available has narrowed dramatically and therefore Whilst it's been good to own those securities during that period, the attraction of owning them going forward has been lessened. I think maybe a good case for 
investors listening to this call to just have a look at the historical risk-reward charts that are, are quite easily to get a hold of. If you contact someone at ASI, certainly I can provide it, but a risk-reward across the fixed income asset class. And you will see that U.S. credit, for example, has performed very well versus a lot of the other sectors that you might consider. And therefore, there have been good reasons why U.S. investors have ignored overseas assets. The one difference in there is some of the parts of the EM asset class, which over similar periods have actually generated investors' good returns, albeit with slightly higher volatility, but you could evidence slightly better returns on average on an annualized basis. But I think when you add the factor in that perhaps the dollar has passed its peak and the U.S. economy has weakened, some uncertain economic policies are currently on the table. And therefore, I think it is a good time for U.S. investors to perhaps think about expanding their their domestic investment picture. What is the impact of investing in different currencies, and how should U.S. investors consider this in their investment decision? So it's a very good question, and there's no simple answer in terms of what investors should do, because owning an overseas currency against the dollar will either produce a positive return or a negative return on top of the underlying security that they own. So Typically in the past, you've seen if U.S. investors have edged into the overseas markets, especially in the investment grade arena, they've typically hedged out the overseas exposure. And so they don't take any non-currency view. They just take the non-currency assets. And what you've found over the last 10 years is a global credit portfolio in dollars, so fully hedged back to dollars, would have produced a slightly lower return than U.S. investment grade credit, as I've just been talking about. But also, they would have done that with a lower level of volatility. So typically, what you're experiencing there is a broader diversification of assets, so it reduces volatility. You've hedged out any currency risk, so the returns are similar. As we mentioned, if investors think that the U.S. dollar might fall, then they should be looking at adding a bit of overseas currency exposure. So not only will they benefit from the assets that they own, but they'll benefit from an appreciation of the overseas currency that they own. Um, As I mentioned, the tricky scenario in, in that place for the larger currencies out there, like the euro, like the yen, is you still have a confused interest rate differential scenario there because where most countries, Europe and Japan and the US, have interest rates at or close to zero, and in case of Europe, in the negative position. So it's slightly harder to understand that scenario. But again, when we add in the EM arena, there's no question when you move into the local currency EM exposure, which is often found via blended funds, that you would want to take some unhedged exposure. It's expensive to hedge out that currency risk. And again, if we think the dollar has got a chance of rolling over, then then you would want to run unhedged in that area of the market. And it's not been a good performer in the past. Um, over the last 10 years, but actually the chances are it could perform well in the immediate future. 
How does Aberdeen consider the impact of currency fluctuations as you structure your fixed income portfolios? Well, as I've just been mentioning there, that we all are different fund managers take account of the currency, the non-base currency exposure of their strategies, and they decide to hedge or unhedge depending on their outlooks for the market. Many of our strategies are fully hedged to make the investor decision much uh, in investment grade space. I would say many of our portfolios are fully hedged because we want it to make it easier for investors to understand the risks that they're taking in that portfolio. And then, as I mentioned, in the emerging world, it's slightly more broader than that because it's expensive to hedge away your currency exposure in the local currency arena. So sometimes we're quite active in that. We will hedge out bits of exposure there to certain currencies, uh, perhaps Brazil during this period because of their poor response to the COVID-19. But it will be very tactical in nature because it would cost you to hedge away the currency exposure. Rod, some fixed income securities can have limited liquidity, particularly in periods of market uncertainty. What advantages do you see in managing a closed-end fund through volatile periods as compared to other product structures? Again, very good question because there's no question that liquidity is always a feature of what fund managers in the fixed income world think about because it does vary and become quite tricky during difficult market periods. And I think I mentioned earlier on, if we use the EM arena as an example again, the bid-offer spread rose dramatically during March this year on the COVID-19. So yeah, the fund managers in that situation, when it happens so dramatically, there's not a lot they can do. What they will suggest is it's not a good period for investors to try and knee-jerk or move money in and out of the funds or indeed as fund managers, you try not to do too much activity during that period because it would be costly for the fund. And so open-ended funds lend themselves to more inflows and outflows. And absolutely, when you when you look at the closed-end arena, it's this, the funds that have the same exposure in the closed-end side will suffer the same volatility in the underlying asset pricing, but you don't suffer the same issue from the flows in and out of the fund by investors. So that's a major benefit from the closed-end arena. They tend to be slightly, investors accept that they are slightly uh, longer term in nature in terms of their investment horizon. And that definitely benefits all investors and the fund managers during extreme price movement periods. Among your family of closed-end funds, Aberdeen manages Aberdeen Asia-Pacific Income Fund, ticker FAX, Aberdeen Global Income Fund, ticker FCO, and Aberdeen Income Credit Strategies Fund, ticker ACP for U.S. investors, as well as Aberdeen Asia-Pacific Income Investment Company, ticker FAP for Canadian investors. Where are you seeing the best opportunities among countries or regions after all the uncertainty we have experienced? Well, the, the good news for all these strategies outside of the ACP, which is a high-yield, corporate high-yield strategy, is the Asian credit arena is one that we would be very optimistic for for the immediate future. 
as I mentioned, the region as a whole seems to have managed the COVID-19 situation very well. Um, you might have expected with the densely populated countries there that there might have been more difficult situations, but indeed that's not been the case. And in fact, one of our favoured countries there, Indonesia, has done a terrific job in the management of COVID-19. So in general, we're optimistic for Asia as a whole. And indeed, there is a bit of a longer-term theme that as we see China developing their Belt and Road strategy, that there is a slight shift of some of the power from west to east in terms of economic development. And again, that will be good for investments in the region. If I look more specifically at ACP, the yield is very attractive, there's no question. And, you know, being a well-managed strategy by Steve Logan, he will be very mindful that the higher corporate market still has some issues to face. Defaults are on the rise. I think the recent numbers suggest they've risen to 4.5% already this year and could head towards a double-digit number by the end of the year. And so I think any high-yield fund has to face the fact that we will see a significant part of the U.S. and global high-yield market run into a, a default scenario, and therefore all the analyst work will be maintained on making sure that you don't own those securities that run into difficulty. So a trickier arena, especially given the macro backdrop, but Again, you're being well compensated with a very attractive yield and therefore on balance, on average, during the course of the next three years, investors will do reasonably well as long as their managers avoid some of those default situations. With central banks indicating the low rate environment may be with us for some time, do you see significant differences between opportunities in sovereign debt and corporate credit? Well, the corporate credit arena cheapened up significantly during March. So we've already seen the opportunities appear in this part of the market. And even though investors aren't dramatically, certainly ASI investors, the fund managers aren't dramatically changing their portfolios, we think there will be clear winners within the different sectors in the corporate market. You've got troubled areas like the oil sector, which is very obvious, but travel, retail, etc. Those areas will remain troubled for a while. Within that, there might still be some investment opportunities, but you can imagine our investors are probably focusing a bit more on some of the stable sectors where they think the names will trade on a more stable basis going forward. In terms of sovereign debt, well, In a sense, perhaps outside of the Asian region, you'll find all the developed world sovereign debts are trading towards the same level. And actually, this has been a path that they've been on for the last 30 or 40 years with varying positions along the way. But as I mentioned, I think the one significant thing you'll see from a U.S. investor point of view is a narrowing of the differential between the U.S. and markets like the U.K., Europe and Japan. Interestingly, what we are probably going to see is more demand appear for Chinese government bonds in a period like this, because actually there is a pickup in yield in Chinese government bonds. It wasn't there two or three years ago, but it is there now. And even in the last few weeks, we've seen some investors 
ask us about the situation here and perhaps how they can invest in that market. Is Aberdeen Standards' active management approach an advantage in these types of market environments? Yeah, that's a very general question. So I'm you know, always conscious that we manage many, many different mandates and funds. As I mentioned, close to $200 billion of fixed income assets. So there are a lot of different moving parts within that. Primarily, we are regarded by the market as an active global manager. And we do think that the situation that we see in front of us is a good scenario where we expect to perform quite well. We rely on credit-related strategies on about 80 analysts based around the world that have very strong track record of good credit research. So good fundamental research will help the fund managers identify not just the sectors, but the names within the sectors that will do best during this unfolding period over the next 12 to 18 months. So we would consider we are well-placed. The active style feels like it's the right position because there are going to be winners and losers. So owning whole allocations to underlying benchmarks may not be the best strategy. You want to, certain parts of the market, you want to own certain names within that and other parts you want to avoid. We mentioned just before in terms of the default cycle for high yield, that could be quite aggressive. We've not really experienced that marginally through the financial crisis, but it's going to be much more acute than that this time. So there will be definitely names to avoid, and being an active manager with a global reach will be important for that. Rod, Aberdeen manages fixed income strategies for many types of investors. Focusing on individual investors in the U.S., how do you see global and emerging market fixed income investments being best positioned in the portfolio of income-oriented investors? But again, in kind of summary from a few points that we've touched on earlier on, the higher yield opportunities give investors that we can find in some of the global markets and especially in the EM arena, mean that it gives investors some cushion that even if there is a bit of volatility ahead, and we, we can't rule that out completely given the extreme economic numbers that we're seeing printed at the moment, So we think global emerging portfolios will do well. Within that, Asia is probably going to be an excellent performer. So certainly, if there ever was a good time for U.S. investors to consider opportunities outside of the U.S., then I think, uh, you know, we're at that point. Rod, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And we want to thank you for tuning in to another CEF Insights podcast. For more educational content, please visit our website at www.cefa.com.